0: Hello, and thank you for joining us for a new episode of Contours, a podcast series of the New Alliance Institute for Strategy and Policy. Today, we are sitting down with Ambassador Gordon Gray and Miss Alice Hickson to discuss recent threats to Tunisian democracy and stability and a spiraling displacement crisis that raises important questions about human security in the country. Before we start, a bit about our speakers. Ambassador Gordon Gray is a professor of practice at Penn State School of International Affairs and a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for American Progress after serving as its chief operating officer for four years. Formerly, Ambassador Gray served as the executive vice president at the National U.S. Arab Chamber of Commerce and the deputy commandant at the National War College. He served as the United States ambassador to Tunisia from 2009 till 2012 witnessing the start of the Arab Spring and directing the U.S. response in support of Tunisia's transition, and has also served as a senior advisor to the U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs, Deputy Chief of Mission in Egypt, Canada, Jordan, Pakistan, and Morocco. Alice Hickson is an analyst for the Power Vacuums Program in the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute where she focuses on challenges and geopolitical patterns related to migration and displacement across the international system. Prior to joining New Lines, Alice worked for the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security and the Council on Foreign Relations. During her time studying in Jordan, she conducted independent research for her thesis on Palestinian refugees and the right of return. I am going to start With the first question, now, Ambassador Gray, I want to talk about Tunisia's legacy, especially with how it's been widely recognized as the birthplace of the Arab Spring and one of the few countries to topple authoritarian leaders following a wave of protests throughout the region. And it's been recognized as this model of a successful democracy in the Middle East and North Africa. Yet President Said's consolidation of power and brace of autocratic measures imposed last summer have threatened this model and its story as a success for democracy. Can you walk us through the country's ongoing political crisis following the July 2021 constitution that dramatically increased President Saeed's executive powers and undermined the country's checks and balances? What were the forces in play that led to this referendum, and how has it really affected Tunisia's governance, human security, and stability?
1: Let me start by thanking you for inviting me onto your program. These are important issues, and I look forward to discussing them with you and and with your audience. I'd like to start a bit earlier, if I may, and go back to the years just following the massive protests in 2011 that led President Ben Ali to flee the country. And following his departure, the political class in Tunisia grappled with two major issues. One was establishing a democratic order, and the second was trying to establish security in in the country following the, the rise of violent Salafism which unfortunately resulted in the assassination of two secular politicians in 2013 and the carrying out of two major terrorist attacks against tourist sites in 2015. And by and large, Tunisia was successful in dealing with these issues. In early 2014, it passed a a new constitution, which had tremendous buy-in from the population because of the wide-ranging consultations that had taken place. And at uh, at the end of 2014, it conducted the first truly free and fair popular elections for president, and there was an orderly and peaceful transition of power. And similarly, the security situation improved as well, both because of greater Tunisian political will on the issue, and also in no small part due to U.S. security assistance. That's the the good news. The bad news, unfortunately, is that the focus on these two issues came at the expense of improving economic conditions and particularly the the focus on political compromise between secularists and the Islamist Anada party during both the first post-Ben Ali government and then during Ejikai Sebsi's term from 2014 to 2019 meant that hard decisions on these issues were deferred. And to sum it up, the consensus politics took the place of dealing with the economy. So fast forwarding to 2019, uh, Kais Saeed, who is not an especially well-known constitutional law professor, rode a wave of disenchantment with establishment politics, with parliamentary gridlock and with the deteriorating economy. His ascetic image appealed to voters and he won the second round of balloting for president in 2019 very decisively with about 3 quarters of the vote during his first 2 year well first year and a half in office the gridlock continued there was a sense of drift in the country and so on July 25th 2021 he invoked article 80 of the previous constitution which allowed the president to suspend parliament in if the nation faced imminent danger and imminent danger was the phrase used. The constitutionality of that move is pretty debatable. Uh, It's hard to argue there was an imminent danger, but keeping the parliament suspended, then dissolving it, plus the subsequent actions were clearly unconstitutional. And those steps included consolidating power in the presidency by shutting down the Anti-Corruption Commission, shutting down the Supreme Judicial Council, putting his own people into the so-called Independent Electoral Commission, and ramming through the new constitution with very little consultation and very little explanation. The final draft was released about three weeks before constitutional vote took place on July 25th, 2022. And only 28% of the the registered voters uh, participated in the referendum, and partly because of an opposition boycott and partly because of voter apathy. As you can imagine, the bottom line is that the Tunisians are more interested in improving the economy than they are in a new constitution. And if President Saeed has an economic vision, he's so far kept it to himself But meanwhile, the problems continue to mount, the economic problems in particular. Inflation on an annual basis reached 9.2% last month. Food prices also on an annual basis are going up 12.5%. Food shortages continue to plague the country. A lot of supermarket shelves are bare now. Other problems exist too. High unemployment, and particularly among the youth where it approaches 40% the rising inflation that I meant, but also the unstable political environment. I wish I could paint a prettier picture, but unfortunately, that describes some of the, the pain that the average Tunisian citizen is going through.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ambassador Gray. I think that this was a really great outline of that economic conundrum. And then, of course, like you mentioned, Unemployment, it's pretty unbelievable, 40%, nearly 40% unemployment rates. And of course, this has affected the basic provision of services and and conditions in Tunisia. And Alice, I'd like to shift to you and, and ask a question, how this, of course, relates to the oncoming migration crisis. Tunisia's crisis, of course, does not exist within a vacuum. And as these rising conditions of insecurity, as they could affect dangerous and unregulated migration across the Mediterranean, you've been watching this nexus. And Tunisia has been traditionally a transit country for high rates of emigration for refugees and asylum seekers from other countries across Africa, like Algeria, Libya, and others. Can you walk us through how these recent decisions by President Saeed have changed conditions in Tunisia for refugees and asylum seekers? and how this may have affected the major spike in migration patterns.
2: Yes, thank you, Caroline. So like you mentioned, Tunisia is a major transit country for migration. Um, this can be linked to regional security threats associated with other transit routes in North African countries, especially Libya. So five years ago, the EU signed a deal with Libya to reduce the number of arrivals to Europe. And since then, over 82,000 people have been intercepted by the Libyan Coast Guard. So due to the risks associated with these transit routes across the Mediterranean, this means an inflow of refugees and asylum seekers from Libya and sub-Saharan Africa intending to embark to Europe are funneled through Tunisia in order to do so. So you already have a high number of migrants, refugees asylum seekers in Tunisia, and on side's recent decisions and police political and economic crisis that ensued have further fueled an exodus, particularly of youth fleeing to Europe due to this inflation, which is at its highest in three decades, and youth unemployment, which Ambassador Gray mentioned, was nearly at 40%. So this is all push factors for youth and refugees and asylum seekers in general to want to leave Tunisia. To this year to date. At least 45,000 Tunisians have tried to or succeeded in crossing the Mediterranean by boat. And just to put that into context, that compares with a total of 36,000, uh, just over 36,000 in 2011 in the aftermath of the Arab Spring uprising. But even prior to these actions in July 2021, between 2020 and 2021, conditions in Tunisia had worsened, causing migration from and through Tunisia to rise to these levels. That haven't been seen since the months following the Arab Spring. So, the majority of these migrants are regular migrants and they have been motivated to leave based on an interplay of three ongoing crises that being the COVID 19 pandemic, rapid economic downturn, and overall pessimism about Tunisia's political leadership. And these all continue to be issues in Tunisia that have motivated migrants to leave. And I think the chief executive of Tunisian for Economic and Social Rights, Alipalbi really said it best. He said, every Tunisian is a migrant in progress. And I think that really emphasizes the scope and scale of migration out of and through Tunisia right
0: now. Absolutely, Alice, you really summarized that well in that this is not existing within a vacuum. And of course, this creates many geopolitical consequences, not only in the context of President Said's authoritarian grab, but a lot of other geopolitical effects abroad, and I want to shift gears and ask Ambassador Gray. You've argued that Tunisia's crisis has drawn concern from regional neighbors and U.S. partners, given both of its risk to democratic values, but also, of course, this potential for regional instability. And while some countries have publicly criticized President Saied's self-coup and have cut financial assistance to Tunisia some countries have refrained from adopting a more critical stance as they are concerns that criticism could risk cooperation in counterterrorism efforts and saving migrant waves from North Africa. What is the best policy pathway forward for the United States and its partners in the region that addresses these imperatives and constraints?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, it's up to the Tunisians to, to determine their own, own future. So consistent with this principle, I think the United States should continue to fund Tunisian civil society organizations that seek to promote democracy within within their country. But there are other things that the United States and partners can do to support the efforts of these civil society organizations. Unemployment, is, Alice mentioned, as I mentioned before in, in my remarks, is so central to the sense of despair that's driving migration from Tunisia. So the United States should work with its partners, and here I'm thinking primarily of the European partners, uh, to find ways to create jobs in Tunisia through technical assistance and trade promotion, encouraging foreign direct investment as well. Job creation within the country would hopefully stem the, the desire to migrate across the Mediterranean. And that's something that is in the Europeans' acknowledged interest. So they, they need to do a bit more than they're they're doing. The Woodrow Wilson Center's Eddie Acevedo recently um, wrote that the United States administration should adopt a mixture of carrots and sticks to influence a return to democracy in Tunisia, And two specific incentives that he proposed were, and I'm I'm quoting here, one is, quote, to allow the Millennium Challenge Corporation to move forward with Tunisia's compact of nearly $500 million, end quote. And the second is, quote, to provide economic assistance through another sovereign loan guarantee, end quote. There's also a a staff-level agreement by the International Monetary Fund for a $1.9 billion loan that Tunisia desperately needs to get its fiscal house in order. No final decision has been taken on that loan. That will come at a, at a December meeting. As far as I know, the staff-level agreement did not call for any democratic reforms, however. And that's a, a point where I think the United States can and should work with its partners in the IMF uh, to to condition the loan.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. With the with the carrot and stick approach, I think it'll be quite interesting to see how the United States and its partners coordinate this response. And Alice, on that note, I, I want to turn to a recent announcement from the U.S. Agency for International Development, which announced a 60 million UNICEF grant to deliver direct support to vulnerable families throughout Tunisia amidst food insecurity and the country's worsening economic crisis. The State Department stated that these funds would assist Tunisia's civil society and private sector, aiming to build a prosperous and more democratic future for all. Now, as the United States seeks to invest further in Tunisian civil society and counter these anti-democratic signs of behavior from President Said, there are many unanswered questions about how the United States and its partners can proactively address the worsening migration crisis. What do you think can be done by the United States and the humanitarian sector to support refugees and asylum seekers in Tunisia? And do you agree with Ambassador Gray's discussion and proposal of a Dixon and carrot approach?
2: Definitely. So migrants in Tunisia are subjected to a variety of protection risks, including the risk of deportation, restricted access to services, mostly due to the absence of a formal national asylum system. So just going back all the way to this year in April, there were protests outside of UNHCR in Tunis where refugees, uh, mainly from sub-Saharan Africa, protested outside the headquarters, claiming that they had been abandoned by UNHCR and demanding resettlement to Europe or the U.S. And they and tent temp outside the headquarters of two months, protesting the forced services for refugees, and the cutting of monthly payments and housing expenses, plus them homeless, uh, and overall just extreme delays in processing that document. And I think to address these issues and the protection risks of migrants in Tunisia that the migrants in Tunisia face, the United States should continue to support Tunisia, uh, like Ambassador Grace said, as it lays the foundation for political stability. Um, and especially with the efforts to strengthen civil society. In particular, I think empowering youth as this is the main demographic to lead, due to the high levels of youth unemployment. so being able to support economic reforms and create jobs is very critical. So yes, I agree, definitely the of the gray. And in terms of the humanitarian space, most of the refugees and asylum seekers stuck in Tunisia are from Sudan, Mali, Somalia Chad, and Ethiopia, following, failed attempts to migrate from Libya via the Mediterranean Sea, as I mentioned. So they will ultimately smuggled into Tunisia through its land border with Libya and are now subjected to detention and ill treatment. And so those stranded in Tunisia need to be provided with urgent aid, including basic life-saving necessities and, of course, that inalienable right to be respected without regard for any other considerations. That's been a lot of talk and protest about how they have been marginalized and discriminated against, And also, because many of these refugees have faced very traumatic journeys on their way to Tunisia, a scale-up of mental health services in Tunisia is definitely necessary. And the U.S. and humanitarian space should really try and support this through more inclusive policies that allow refugees to access the health system and also you know, the labor market and pathways to legal residency, for
0: instance. Thank you, Alice. Absolutely. And this was a very in depth policy proposal that you, I think you just outlined with mental health services and other financial assistance. And I want to shift gears and ask Ambassador Gray you recently argued in an article for the national interest that cutting off aid to Tunisia, while some might find it emotionally gratifying, may not induce a change in President Saeed's authoritarian behavior. And you walked us through this a bit with your previous answer, but I want to ask what specific tools, tactics, mechanisms can the United States wield? What does it have at its disposal to use in Tunisia? And how should it coordinate with its partners abroad to achieve these
1: aims? Well, I think first, on a bilateral basis, the United States should focus on continuing security assistance, continuing support for Tunisian civil society organizations, as I had had mentioned before, and also on job creation. We can't do this alone, however, and neither can the, the Tunisian people. And that's why I think it's important for the United States to embark on a more robust diplomatic effort to help catalyze greater European engagement in stabilizing Tunisia and helping it return to a democratic path. And we've got several several different fora to do so, thinking of our regular frequent policy discussions with the European Union, the same with the group of seven countries, and also with our bilateral discussions with the European countries most, most affected. As I mentioned before, we also have leverage within international financial institutions on not just the IMF, although that's the the biggest loan agreement on the table, but also the African Bank for Development um, and and the World Bank as well. And just stepping back and putting it in in a bit larger perspective, it's totally understandable that both the administration and many of our allies and partners are focused on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and also on how to deal with a assertive China right now. But at the same time, and and for the same reasons that we're focusing on those two countries, we need to remember that, as I wrote in the National Interest article that you cited, the survival of Tunisian democracy has an outsized importance at a time of global autocratic revival.
0: Certainly. And I, I think that you rightly point out, Ambassador Gray, that some of the effects that we're seeing in Tunisia are not only just the effects of some of the supply line cuts and the economic overspill that we're seeing from the war in Ukraine. You know, again, Tunisia is w- one of many cases, but like you mentioned, the, the product of a lot of these authoritarian decisions and and moves that have been made by President Said. And on that note, I want to turn to the both of you, and I, I suppose we'll start with Alice, and then, of course, Ambassador Gray. I want to ask both of you, as these political, economic, and social conditions in Tunisia continue to deteriorate, we are looking at some of the highest levels of irregular migration in Tunisia since 2011, undermined democracy, increasing potential for widespread instability, and a number of other challenges. Where do you see this crisis headed? Do you think Tunisia could emerge as a power vacuum in the region? Or do you see some kind of alternative uh, forecast for the
2: country? Yeah, thank you, Caroline. So as Ambassador Gray Mission, Tunisia has been hit hard by the cascading effects of the Ukraine crisis. And they've seen shortages of fuel and bread in recent months. And while they are potentially on track to secure international monetary fund help, I think that's doing very little to uplift public opinion on this and many, you know, food products are being rationed, the national fuel shortage is worsening, and, and these are all push factors for people to emigrate and can con- continue to leave Tunisia. And I think the future of Tunisia hinges on a variety of factors, one of which is how the government handles this growing wave of migrants, both people attempting to leave Tunisia and migrants moving through stalls in Tunisia as a transit point. You know, many of these migrants remain stuck in poor economic conditions and are still unable to reach their final destination due to the fact that, yes, Tunisia's constitution guarantees the right to seek political asylum, but its law does not provide a legal and procedural framework for asylum seekers. So this situation, people being stuck, ignored, unable to seek asylum formally, we have already seen lead to months-long sit-ins outside of UNHCR and ultimately they would not resettle to that destination. So I I do believe that this has potential to further social unrest, especially as the migrant crisis grows. Thank you, Alice and Ambassador Gray.
1: As difficult as the situation is in in Tunisia and as bleak as the prospects may be, I I don't see it deteriorating to the point that the country becomes a, a power vacuum. I don't discount the the possibility of greater civil unrest. We've already seen seen a fair amount this year, but I don't see it getting to the point of say a, a country like Libya next door, where there's you know a festering and, and persistent civil war. I think that's just that's inconsistent with Tunisian society. I'd also note that Algeria has a strong interest in making sure that Tunisia remains relatively stable. To this aim, it's been providing more and more economic assistance. I think what the more likely scenario that we'll see is continued deterioration in the economy, continued slide to autocracy. Both are obviously destabilizing a worsening economy in the short run and autocracy in the long run. But I don't think they'll result in a in a power vacuum.
0: Thank you, Ambassador Gray. And thank you so much, Alice Hickson, for joining us today for an excellent discussion about, of course, Tunisia's very precarious position and ongoing crisis with its political system and with displacement. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us here today. And I hope that you and our readers have a great rest of your week. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Ambassador Gordon Gray and Miss Alice Hickson about Tunisia's crisis of instability and displacement. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast series, Contours, on many streaming platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify, so you don't miss any of our new podcasts. Please also check out further analyses about geopolitics and foreign policy at www.newlinesinstitute.org.